Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When it comes to digitized records and digital government, some countries are further along than others. Britain's National Health Service still buys fax machines every year. But one upside of the pandemic is that it's speeding up digital shifts. And the remote hamlet of Hyder in Alaska was so linked with nearby Stewart that you'd barely know it was across the Canadian border. COVID-19 has broken those links, and border controls are stopping much-needed provisioning for the winter. But first... A backlash is growing against China's abuse of Uyghurs, a mainly Muslim ethnic minority group in the province of Xinjiang. The Chinese Communist Party is detaining and abusing more than one million Uyghur Muslims in internment camps in Xinjiang. We met one former detainee who described being placed in chains and a full metal jacket as he was interrogated. This week, Disney came under fire for filming its new movie Mulan in Xinjiang, and for thanking the region's government in the closing credits. Calls for people to boycott the film returned once again this week. At the same time came news that the Trump administration is considering a ban on importing products containing cotton from the province. It's responding to concerns that some Chinese companies rely on forced labor by Uyghurs. The evidence of China's persecution of the minority group has been piling up. And for multinational companies that depend on Chinese suppliers, it's a thorny issue. Xinjiang is a very important production base for certain agricultural products in China. And it's also a place which has attracted a tremendous amount of scrutiny for human rights issues. Henry Trix writes Schumpeter, our column on global business. The US State Department and the human rights groups think you basically have a state-sponsored system in which the Uyghurs who have been detained in re-education camps are, for example, allocated to work on farms as cotton pickers, or they are sent to work in factories in parts of China that may be outside of Xinjiang. And so what kind of companies abroad might be implicated in that forced labor if in fact it's happening? The companies most exposed are those that are linked to cotton industry. The region produces about 84% of China's cotton, and China is the world's biggest cotton, yarn and textile exporter. There's also connections to other agricultural goods like tomatoes, 
There are companies that have already announced a commitment to cut all ties with cotton that is produced in Xinjiang. That's, for example, Adidas or PVH Core, which is an American firm that owns brands like Calvin Klein. But there's also a bigger question here, which is how much the Uyghurs are forced to leave the region to work in factories elsewhere in China, which is where also the electronics industry and other industries are concerned about potentially having forced laborers in their supply chains. And so what are those NGOs and and indeed America's State Department doing about it? The New York Times reported this week that the Trump administration is actually considering banning some or all of the products that are made with cotton from Xinjiang. It said it wasn't clear whether that ban would cover only cotton products produced in Xinjiang or whether it could extend to cotton products made elsewhere that have the Xinjiang cotton in them. And remember that Xinjiang cotton gets woven into yarn that is used in cotton products everywhere. This is just the latest in a uh, series of measures since last year by the American government related to allegations of forced labour in Xinjiang. So they've been imposing sanctions on firms that do business there. They've also blacklisted some Chinese textile companies And they're also suggesting very strongly to American firms that they should refrain from dealing with any supplier in China that may use forced labor in the supply chains. But big multinational firms must be used to dealing with these questions, unfair labor practices, forced labor, child labor, and so on. Why is that set of issues in Xinjiang so different? This is China. These problems are compounded by the fact that it is a country with an enormously powerful state. It is vital to many manufacturers and that it's also in the middle of a very significant geopolitical spat with America. I mean, one of the most immediate issues with regards to Xinjiang for companies is that they find it very difficult to audit their supply chains. For example, I spoke to some of the companies that send the auditors into factories in Xinjiang. And what they find is that when they get to the region, they're followed around by police, they're filmed. And so it becomes an incredibly uncomfortable place to do your inspections, which means that of the ones that I spoke to, at least, none of them are willing anymore to do audits in Xinjiang. That means that you basically have a black hole in the supply chain. Any company that has a factory in Xinjiang is unable to prove that it is not using forced labour, even if the companies that buy its products are convinced that the company is pretty ethical. And I suppose the geopolitical context complicates matters even further. Yes, companies can't raise their concerns directly with the Chinese government. The Chinese government is loath to accept anyone telling it about its supposed human rights problems. And then you have the American government, which also takes somewhat of a shoot first and ask questions later approach to this. So it's sanctioned Chinese companies that it accuses of using forced labour in a way that some of the companies involved say has not even involved them being given the right to reply. And the American companies themselves say, You're asking us basically to police a system 
that it's very difficult for us to get to the bottom of. And you're not giving us the kind of diplomatic backup that we need. So there are no negotiations, for example, according to the companies that I spoke to, between governments about how to deal with this question of forced labour in the supply chains and what this means for the companies. And so how would multinational firms deal with that kind of cut of access to cotton from Xinjiang? I think it would have a big impact on all international brands that source their textiles from China. I mean, some of them might even take it as a reason to pull out of China altogether. But it's a very complicated decision because Chinese cotton is mostly produced in Xinjiang and China exports that cotton around Southeast Asia. You're then faced with the question of if I produce my garments in Vietnam or Bangladesh or elsewhere, can I be sure that I'm not using Xinjiang cotton? And the other thing is that companies will be very reluctant to break their bonds with Chinese suppliers that go back decades. They've built up very strong relationships of trust with these suppliers. So it's a very tricky issue for all parties involved in the textile business. And the way you've laid it out, a virtually impossible one to unpick. There are technological solutions to these kind of things. You can use DNA testing to determine the origin of cotton. So you could find out whether the cotton came from Xinjiang, but it's expensive. The irony here is that the Chinese government is shooting itself in the foot with its repression of the Uyghurs from an economic point of view as well as a human rights point of view. Companies are withdrawing from the region. The whole point of their repression is to try and make Xinjiang a more stable place. And yet the more they use repression to achieve that, the more they are undermining its economic stability into the future. Henry, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organisation better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Even at the best of times, dealing with government bureaucracy can be a trial. But when government offices are closed, when face-to-face meetings to present piles of paper documents are precluded, bureaucratic wheels grind to a halt. For months, courts were suspended in France. In England alone, more than 70,000 marriages were delayed. But in countries whose bureaucracy had already moved online, there was far less disruption. That digitization of government is, to greater and lesser degrees, happening all over, and the pandemic is speeding it along. But there could well be high costs of rushing that digital shift. So it might seem like you can do almost anything online these days. You know, you can go to a yoga class, you can order your groceries. Daniel Knowles is The Economist's international correspondent. But one thing that's really difficult to do online is interact with the government in a lot of countries. Things like health records in Britain's NHS are still very often stored on paper and transferred between doctors by fax machine, if not physically. In America, kind of proving your identity if you want to apply for 
unemployment insurance or something like that often involves faxing or um, physically producing documents like birth certificates or marriage licenses. So there's a huge amount of government that just still sort of happens in a paper world that hasn't really been digitized. And why is that? Why have so many governments been so resistant to, to the digital transition? Well, some of it, I think, is just the slowness of government. Some some of it is that it's quite difficult to move um, kind of legacy systems online. It's very expensive. Things like birth certificates, you know, you have to just sort of have systems for everybody who's ever been born. An awful lot of them have, you know, documents that sort of predate the advent of the Internet age, and you'd have to get them all to update them. So there's lots of lots of kind of reasons of expense and complication that have slowed this all down. But uh, this has all been sort of shown up by the pandemic to be a bit of a problem. In the sense that we shouldn't be going to government offices and carrying paper from place to place, you mean? Exactly. And, and you know, it's not only uh, private sector workers who are working from home. It's, it's been government workers, too, especially during the kind of height of lockdowns. Even if you've gone to the government office, there wouldn't have been anybody there. So you've had kind of these huge problems, you know, um, for this piece, I talked to a number of new parents who had all sort of found the bureaucracy of registering their child's birth, of um, getting vaccinations, of sort of, you know, it's all still done with paper. In Britain, you get this thing called a, a little red book, which kind of registers all of the health interventions. And if that can't be filled in in paper, then, well, you've got problems. Another part of government that's that struggled in, you know, lots of countries, including Italy, but also most obviously the United States is, is unemployment insurance systems. In Florida, you had people queuing on the streets trying to get their claims in. Long lines of cars were seen again today for those who need assistance. Because they just could not access their digital systems because they went down. Elsewhere, you've had uh, huge amounts of fraud, people kind of claiming benefits um, with other people's identities. And, and in Washington state, that led to almost half a billion dollars of being paid out to fraudsters, only about half of which was recovered. And with the pandemic having revealed all of these shortcomings, I mean, it's worth thinking about how to, how to fix it all. I mean, what, what is the, the scope of the changeover required in these countries? It's a huge challenge because what you have to do is kind of digitized databases, which aren't all digitized. You need to get people's health records online. You have to get people's um, birth certificates, their identity online. But there are countries that do this well. One that always sort of gets the most attention, rightly and justly, is Estonia, which has uh, this incredibly kind of digital system, digitized government. Um, and the core of it is a, is a digital identity card. So in Estonia, you have what they call an e-citizenship, which um, essentially is a kind of ID card, but it's not just a physical ID card. It's also a number that, that kind of connects together all of your records in government databases and means that you can prove who you are online, but also that the government can kind of see that you, when you go to hospital, are the same person as you, know, you who work at your employer, the same person who you pay whatever taxes. I mean, I suppose that's easier to pull off, though, if you are a country the size of Estonia. Yes, and Estonia, you know, managed to do this because it was able to sort of get together its private sector with its banks and sort of persuade people to accept these cards. And in bigger countries with larger economies, more complicated economies, it's a much bigger task to introduce a system like this and to persuade people to use it. But other countries are beginning to catch up. Estonia is the beacon that, that others can follow.
But the, the, the risk whenever this kind of conversation arises is the, the centralization of, of data and the privacy risks that that, that entails. Yes, absolutely. And that's been one of the big challenges. You know, I mean, if Boris Johnson, Britain's prime minister, sort of once said that if he was forced to present an ID card, he would eat it. If I'm obliged to have an ID card by the emanations of the state, then I will take that ID card and I will snip it up and I will grind it in a boot and I will eat it uh, on my uh, cornflakes. This kind of fear that the government, if it has all this information on people, will be able to use it in some nefarious way um, is, uh, you know, it's quite widespread. There's also concerns that you could botch it. I mean, government IT contracts have been botched in the past. And if you created a system that was, in fact, not very secure, then fraudsters might find it easier rather than harder to steal identities. So there are definitely some problems. But all told, with the, 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 the weaknesses shown up by the pandemic and the, the potential shown by places like Estonia, for example, do, do you think uh, th- that shift to digitization will be sped up? Well, I think the pandemic makes it very hard to sort of carry on muddling along. You know, we've had so many tests already and you have more coming. In America, you have the election, which there's lots of concerns, obviously, about uh, postal voting, but uh, digital identity is the sort of thing that would make that easier. And then you have track and trace systems. All of that is made much easier in the places where there are digital identities. So I kind of think it's changed the balance of risks a little bit, you know, the risks of uh, not having uh, investing in kind of digitizing government now seem all the more dramatic relative to the sort of hypothetical risks of privacy problems. It just all seems harder and harder to argue that this is something we can carry on doing without. Thanks very much for joining us, Daniel. Thank you for having me, Jason. My name's Wes. Last name is Lowe, L-O-E. Right now I'm mayor of Hyder, Alaska. We have a population at this point probably around 65 to 70 people. Hyder is situated deep in the heart of rural Alaska. It's one of the most isolated settlements in America. Three miles from where I am, right up the road, is Fish Creek. It's a bare platform. In fact, I was up there just the other day, and I stood there for an hour taking, I took over 70 pictures of the grizzlies walking around. There's no one else there. Hyder relies heavily on the neighboring town of Stewart, which is in northwestern British Columbia, a veritable metropolis in comparison with 400 residents. For generations, the Stewartites and Hyderites have crossed the Canada-America border with ease. But the pandemic has forced officials to close that frontier, making life more difficult for both sides, but especially for the smaller of the towns. This is really dividing our communities, this thing, and it's almost, the virus is bad, it is one thing. But the effect of the virus now on certain communities is way, way beyond the virus as far as a lot of people are concerned. It is now the middle of August. The people in Hyder, we don't even have enough firewood, enough supplies at this point to get through the winter. And in that part of the world, getting through the winter is no small worry. For many Americans and Canadians, the closing down of borders has been a nuisance. They haven't been able to get their parcels. They haven't been able to go shopping or sightseeing. But for other Americans, especially along the Alaska and British Columbia border, it has been a real problem for them because they are getting ready for the winter. Peg Fong is our Vancouver correspondent. 
nowhere is that clearer than in the towns of Stewart, British Columbia and Hyder, Alaska, which is right on the border. And they have been isolated from each other. And it's a community that has been used to sharing life together. How do you mean? What, what were relations like before there were border controls? For generations, Stewardites and Hyderites, as they call each other, they've crossed back and forth. It really was a meaningless border. They celebrated Canada Day on July 1st together in Stewart. And then three days later, everyone just heads over to Hyder to mark the July 4th holiday, which is the American holiday. But still, though, for all that familiarity, it is an international border. I mean, what was the border crossing like before the pandemic? It's one of the only land border crossings between Canada and the U.S. where someone may legally enter onto American soil without having to report for inspection. It is that tiny and that remote in this area. On the Canadian side, there is a border crossing, but the border agent goes home at 4.30. And technically, and I I asked the mayor, Mayor Westlow, about this, why don't you just cross the border? If there's no one there, no one's watching, why don't you just cross the border? And his answer was very Alaskan. It's just not the right thing to do, he said. And how have things changed then since the border closure? What does it look like trying to cross that porous border now? The border closure between Canada and the U.S., it was extended for another month until September 21st. But because of the remoteness of Hyder, there is a special essential designation for the residents there. And it allows them to cross into Stewart once every seven days for a few hours. One of the things that the mayor has said, every time he comes back after making the trip to Stewart, he realizes he forgot something that he should have gotten. And now he has to wait another seven days before he can go across again. Is there a better way to do things such that people could move more freely to be able to get what they need for the season ahead? Well, what both Hyder and Stewart residents, and they really do consider each other family, what they really want is to create their own bubble. They need to start stockpiling their provisions, their firewood, everything that they need to get through the winter, which is already an isolating time and an isolated place. But it's going to be even worse if they're not able to get their supplies. For as long as anyone who have been living there can remember, they've essentially operated as one. They're used to isolation up there, but they don't want to be isolated from each other. Isolation is fine, but they want to be isolated together. Peg, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. See you back here tomorrow. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.